Please turn with you now to Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. And they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put, out, put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Then Moses said to the Lord, O O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, O my Lord, please sin by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are amazed at this interchange between God and man on many levels, and it is puzzling to us on many levels as well. But, Lord, we know there are great treasures hidden in these things. We know that there is great profit somewhere to be found. And we ask, Lord, that you would reveal it to us, that you would make great use of this, your own word, that would be precious in our sight, and none of it, not a word, would fall to the ground, but that you'd bless it to our benefit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight we come to this first half of chapter 4 in Exodus where God answers Moses' objections. And let me just say very, very frankly that it is a strange and complicated interchange. It works on any number of levels and there are not many simple things that can be said about all these things except God answers all these objections. And that is the title tonight, God Answers Moses' Objections. 
Now, how that happens and all the implications of these things and meanings that come along with it, well, it's interesting. At points, he's reflecting on the obstinacy of his own people. He knows these people, and he knows they're obstinate, and so he's, he's acting in accordance with that. But at times, he's reflecting the fact that he's no better. He's just as obstinate. He's speaking to his Lord in respectful terms, but yet in his heart, he is disobedient and unwilling to receive the word that has clearly come to him. And again, all the more strange because Moses was there covering his face before the theophany, the, the, the God who has appeared, the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. And yet he dares to disobey and defy God. And to add to it, it's, it's he, it's Moses who wrote all this down. Here he is describing this, this strange interchange and his heart of disobedience and these unworthy objections and all the rest of it. And, and, and he's writing it down at the inspiration of, of God. A reminder, of course, of the truth of Scripture. It would surely be difficult to conceive of a human author describing himself in such a way. But this is not really about Moses, is it? It's, it's about the God who called Moses. It's about the God, the angel of the Lord, who was, had appeared and was going to redeem this people and just how that was going to happen. At every point in Exodus, we either are given foreshadowings of how this great redemption was going to happen, or the redemption as it was happening, or looking back at the redemption that has happened, which is what we do. This is our Christian life. This, this is the situation of the whole world. Until the, in fact, until all, throughout all of eternity, future to come, this is our situation before God. We are always those who are continually looking back uh, uh, to the, the redemption that has already happened and being thankful for it, if we've, in fact, already been redeemed. But at this point, we are considering these things, and we are considering that God is able to defeat all of his enemies. He is able to empower his servants, no matter how weak. And yes, he is able to overcome even our own reticence our own unwillingness to obey him. So the title of the sermon is God Answers Moses' Objections. And they are these three. One, they won't believe me. Two, I am not eloquent. Three, I don't want to go. They won't believe me. I am not eloquent. I don't want to go. So first of all, they won't believe me. In Verse 1, then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. Well, let me say, first of all, this objection flies in the face of the assurance that was given a few verses before in Exodus 3, verse 16. You remember? Go gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 18, then they will heed your voice. And that is, in fact, precisely what happens at the end of this chapter. God is not false. He did not tell a lie. In verse 31, so the people believed And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. And no disobedience, 
At this point, no unbelief is recorded. So, on the one hand, it flies in the face of what God has prophesied. It flies in the face of what, in fact, is going to happen. But on the other hand, Moses does know the people. God knows the people, in fact. And so it's based on reality. And God, in his wisdom, is willing to make some provision that the people might believe him to be a prophet of God. In fact, Moses is later going to to write about this in in Deuteronomy. There's going to be provision in order that people will always know whether it's a true prophet of God. I mean, in some sense, God could, uh, could just simply demand obedience. He could simply say, this is my prophet. You didn't believe him. But it never works that way. God always sends signs accompanying his prophets at these crucial moments in order that the word of God might be authenticated. It never has been that we simply have to take it and look, I have no evidence whatsoever to suggest that this might be the word of God, but I guess we're just going to have to take it. He always provides ample signs and wonders, miracles that authenticate the prophet of God. And I think that he intended to do this from the very beginning. I think that was his intention. Well, what sort of signs? On one level, they demonstrated divine power and therefore authenticated Moses as the authorized spokesman. But beyond that, they would communicate God's power over his enemies. Okay, it works on both levels. On, he could have picked any old signs and they would have done the, the trick as far as serve the turn of, of, of authenticating Moses and his supernatural power. But they were not just any signs. They all explain something. They all portray some specific element of God's power. And it is all very relevant to this redemption that he is about to undertake. So what's the first one? So the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? He said, a rod. And he said, cast it to the ground. So he cast it to the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. And notice it became a serpent. This is something that the creator God can do. It didn't look like a serpent. It wasn't a robotic serpent. It didn't have the it was a serpent. As God was able to, to create the whole universe by the word of his power, as he's able to create make Adam out of the dust of the ground, so he makes a serpent out of of the, the rod. Even though and though he revert he changes his back, it doesn't doesn't take it away at all. If you could have frozen that moment and you could have sent any biologist to examine this, this snake, and it would be precisely as any other snake. God has done this great miracle. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. And I'll just say very briefly, as one who's been around poisonous snakes in a place of many poisonous reptiles in Florida, that's not the best idea. Because, of course, taking it by its its tail means that it has all kinds of levers to come around and bite you. But this is the command of God, and he knows what's going to happen, because as soon as he touches the tail, it becomes, again, a rod in his hand. Verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Well, let me say that this word serpent is the very same use of Satan in Genesis chapter 3. Now, God and his servant need to have power over the devil because what would happen if there wasn't power over this serpent, the devil? The answer is the whole project, the whole mission was going to fail, right? Right? 
because Satan is typified here as, as Pharaoh, and Satan seemed to uh, wield an, un, a, a, an unusual influence and direct influence over this Pharaoh and all of his wickedness and rebellion and unwillingness to let the people go. And were there not such power over the great enemy, Satan? Well, the whole thing would have been pointless. But what is demonstrated in this particular sign is that God and also the Redeemer whom he sends has perfect power even over the serpent. Over the serpent that, yes, overcame Adam and Eve, but is not going to overcome the Redeemer in this great work of redemption. Well, what about the second one? Leprosy. Verse 6, furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out again, but look, uh, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in the bosom again and drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And we see all this, the great condescension and goodness of God. It shouldn't have they believed it the first one. Yes, but God in his goodness and his kindness and his patience with his slow-hearted people, his slow-willed people, is willing to give them yet another sign. So that the point is that they might come to faith. God is good like that. Now, what is this pointing to beyond establishing once again the veracity of of Moses and the authenticity of his, his, his message and mission. I need not tell you that leprosy was regarded with great horror, of course. And Moses was to go on to write significant material about it in the books to come, for instance, Leviticus. And what is leprosy? Why was it so terrible? Well, it's a picture, isn't it, of uncleanness. The definition of someone who is unclean is someone who has leprosy. There is the the ceremonial law that if you have leprosy, you have to go around saying, unclean, 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 because it's so, this, this, this disease is very catchable. Um, it is something that is, if you touch somebody with it, they're going to get it as well. And it is a picture, therefore, of sin and its, uh, of its virulence and its communicability to others. Uh, a picture of the contamination of sin actually in our own flesh. Now, would it be a stretch to say that maybe this is a picture of uh, the fact that he is able? Yes, first he has the hand of leprosy, and then he takes it out and it's restored perfectly. Would it be a stretch to say then that God has power even to overcome the enemy that is our own flesh? Uh, that is, of course, the problem in all this. If, if, Moses, if God can't even convince an unwilling Moses to go and do this work, well, the people are doomed Right? If he can't even make sure that his rebellion is not going to be to overcome God, but God is going to overcome his rebellion, none of this work of redemption is going to happen. And so it is, actually, throughout all of time. At no point is, is God's church on such wonderful situation that all the, all the people and the, the ministers and officers just say, we're here and we're going to do the will of God no matter what, and nothing's going to stop us. no. In our weakness and our sin, our flesh is so weak and so sinful and so contaminated that given to ourselves, we would never take a step in the direction of which God has indicated for us. And the work of redemption would come to an absolute halt. 
In order for this to work, God has got to be able to have power, to wield power even over our flesh, as weak and as contaminated as it might be. And so it is. And so it is. God has power over that too. So that's the devil. It's the flesh. And what's the third one? It's turning water into blood. That's probably the hardest one to think about, but let's, let's, let's read it in verse 9. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. And the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Now, the significance of the River Nile for the, for the Egyptian people and the nation of Egypt could not be overstated. It was, in various ways, divinized. It was imagined to have magical powers. as more than just a river, even in natural terms, of course. We can say back then and we can say now that, that the, the nation, which would otherwise be a desert, receives its irrigation, its source of life from this river. And it, even, even in more dramatic terms back then. Were not the river Nile alive and a source of life, they would all die, and they knew it. But again, they infused it with more than that, with, more, with supernatural and magical and, and divine characteristics. That's the way they thought of this great river Nile. And what then if, if this man under the hand of God could turn this source of life into a source of death? What if he could turn their river, their great center, their heart, into something that was deadly and, and putrefying. Well, this, of course, is a manifestation of the great power of God over all that opposes him. And maybe if, if in fact, this is a symbol of the nation of Egypt, and Egypt itself is a picture of the whole world and its opposition and rebellion against God, well, maybe this is pointing out that God has power over the world as well. The world in its rebellion. The world as an organized system that is against God. Yes, he is able to overcome that as well. Because if the world can't be overcome, if the nation of Egypt can't be overcome, again, we're stuck. You can't leave Egypt because Egypt is going to keep the people within itself. But God does have power over Egypt. And nothing that the Egyptians could do could stop this work of redemption. So there you have it. The world and the flesh and the devil, all of them will be overcome by, the, by God through his servant Moses. So these are the signs in it that, that constitute God's answer to the objection, they won't believe me. But Moses is undeterred by these things. And he moves on then, secondly, to say, I am not eloquent. That's the second point. So in verse 10, and Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, I don't know where to begin with this one. But I guess let's begin with some sympathy for Moses and say it looks like that that was grounded in some element of truth. Okay, he makes the point that this is a long-standing situation, part of his character, neither before nor, nor since. This is just who he has been. It's not that at the moment he's caught off guard by speaking to the angel of the Lord in the burning bush, but this is, this is him. Now, whether it amounted to some kind of speech impediment, as, as many people think, it may well be that, or just that he was slow thinking on his feet. Not sure. But again, you think of the, Moses knows what the court looks like. He knows what happens in Pharaoh's court, and that's where he's about to be sent. And it's like maybe some of us would think about the situation of prime minister's question time. 
uh, having to think on your feet that sort of way. Some of us are just not cut out to think on our feet that quickly. And we would find that to be a bewildering and, and scary proposition. And maybe what, whether at least one or both of those things were true of Moses. So he lays that out. But again, you have to think, on the other hand, he's speaking to the living God who knows everything, who has specifically appeared to this one man to give him this mission. Does he not know this? As he caught him up, oh, Moses, I did not know that about you. I will guess I just will have to go find someone else. You know, he is not caught off guard by these things. He, he knows it, and you wonder at, at Moses raising such objection in this way. And, of course, the irony, the other irony of the situation is not only that he's acting as if God doesn't know these things and hasn't figured it out, but he's making the objection to the creator God who is in charge of all these things. So that's, that's of course, what God responds. The Lord said to him, what, who has made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, and the blind? Have I not the Lord? His point is, look, Moses, if you are slow of speech, it's because I made you that way. And if I want you not to be slow of speech, I could, I could snap my hands and it would happen. You just said, I, it hasn't happened. I, I'm, I don't care. It must not be a necessary part of my plan. But were I to want you to be, you would immediately be the, the fastest talking, most effective speaker, speaker the world has ever known. All that power is in the hand of the living God. Now, he goes on in verse 12. Therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Again, this remarkable patience and condescension. And even in the face of these getting kind of unreasonable objections now, he is saying, I'll be with you. You know, that's, that's a theme of the book of Exodus. That's a theme of the Pentateuch generally, is this promise that God is going to be with us. Later on, Moses would say, look, if you don't go with me, I'm not, there's no purpose. I'm not going to go. Uh, but if you go with me, then I know that, that this will be okay. And, and, Moses, and, and Moses is learning that. He didn't always know that. The Lord is making his assurance to, the, to him that I will be with you and I will be with your mouth. He will empower. Yes, he may not be the greatest at speaking, but God is promising that he is going to provide divine enablement in order that even in his weakness, he might be a mighty speaker. And as you read, as you read later on, you see, it doesn't seem like a man who's slow of speech to me. It doesn't seem like he was, that this was all beyond him. God made him able for the task ahead. And I will teach you what you shall say. Isn't that true of us? Can't we say, I hope we can say, have you ever been, has God ever called you to do something you didn't want to do? Have you ever had reticence? Have you ever thought of all of your, your own unworthiness and weakness? And has God been with you? Has he been able to sustain you? Has he even been able to teach you what you should say? I think he has. It's a promise, you know, for those who are arrested and, and, and charged for, for being Christians, that in elsewhere in scripture it points out you, you don't need to worry in such a day what you shall say because the Holy Spirit will, will teach you, will enable you, give you the words in such a moment to speak. Well, that was the second objection that the Lord answered. That he is not eloquent. And thirdly, we get down to the real heart of the matter when he says, I don't want to go. Verse 13, he said, Oh, my Lord, please sin by the hand of whomever else you may send. Now we come to it. 
the heart of these objections is just that he didn't want to go. He did not want to obey. And again, I'm amazed at the condescension and the, the patience of God. First of all, in his wisdom, he could have seen through all of this, but also in his omniscience, he knew from the beginning what the heart of this man was. He knew that he didn't want to do it. And yet he, bear, he was bearing with him at every point and answering very re- rationally these objections, very reasonably and very patiently. But he didn't want to go. And let me just say, do you know what this is? This is sin. This is insubordination. This is rebellion against the living God. Right? At this point, there is nothing left. There is no possible objection. And, and he is standing in the presence of the living God who is telling him directly, you must go to Egypt to redeem my people. There's no mistake here. It's not like sometimes we are praying about a certain course of action. And we have to say, Lord, I don't know for sure whether you have me do this or, or that. But in this case, he knew exactly what it was. And he was disobeying. And so in verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And rightly so. This was... He's God. He'd been given these very plain instructions. As I mentioned, every question and objection answered, he simply didn't want to obey, and God has righteous anger against him. Rightly so. That is the response of a living, holy God against sin, against rebellion. We must not think of God's anger in the way that we are sometimes anger. The vast majority of all of our anger is unrighteous. It's done out of pique. It's done out of selfishness. It's done out of pride. It's done out of sin in one way or another. But God's anger is not like that. God's anger is holy and perfect as he is holy. And it would have been wrong for him not to be angry in the face of such insubordination by his servant Moses. That all is why the Lord's response is so amazing. Of course, in other cases, when people have been such disobediences, wipe them off the face of the earth. In this case, he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he's also coming out to meet you. Really? How did, how did Aaron know? And, and how God, we know, is telling the truth. He's, he's coming out. It's in the present tense. This is already happening. He's already coming out to meet him. How? How did he know? Because the living God also, in some way or another, communicated to Aaron to come out and meet his brother. In fact, all of this had been planned from the beginning. This is always God's plan, in fact. And he had intended to send Moses this help. Amazing, truly amazing. I know that he can speak well, (laughs) because don't forget, Moses, I know who can speak well and who can't, because I've done that, that is what I've done. And look, he's coming out to meet you, and he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Words of affirmation, words of encouragement, even in the face of this sin, even in the face of this disobedience, it, it, it defies imagination. Now you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. What a provision. What a provision. God does not uh, say, fine, you, you won't have this privilege. You won't have this honor that was going to be. I mean, who has greater honor in the word of God in the Old Testament but Moses? And he's trying everything he can to pass up on this, this great honor. 
The Lord in his mercy and goodness says, no, I will, I will find a way to help you even in this. And he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth to you, and what? And you shall be to him as God. Because that's really the way that things were going to work, isn't it? That God was going to elevate Moses to such a height, an unprecedented height, so much full of, of power. You see it in the latter chapters as things go on and the Egyptians begin to get it and they, 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 they fear God. And they tremble at the word of Moses. And they dare not defy the word of Moses. He becomes great. You remember that? This man Moses was very great in their eyes. We're going to see that. That's the height that God was putting him to the highest level possible that he would be even as God. Remarkable patience. Remarkable forbearance. This is our God, this gracious and merciful God, dealing with his man, Moses, in order that the work of redemption must carry on. Let me say again that this is the case with all of his people. The Lord were not merciful and gracious and patient with men like Peter. Think about that. Are we not all just waiting, as it were, on some, to, to, to see Peter get zapped? I know I am. That, that's not going to fly. You know, at every point opposing the stated mission and, and tempting the Lord to turn aside from his mission and then to add to it, denying the Lord Jesus on the very night in which he is being betrayed and tried. That's unconscionable. Zap! No more Peter. We move on to somebody else. But it doesn't happen. And he uses such a weak instrument in his patience and empowers him and raises him up to the greatest of heights and sends him out to do the great work of redemption. Amazing thing. Well, I think we should move on to application. I do not claim to have plumbed the depths of the complexity of these things. Again, just to say that God was able to answer Moses' objections. And let's, first of all, the first application is let's just be honest before God, okay? Because sometimes there are questions and sometimes there are just, it's just sin. It's just disobedience. It's just an unwilling heart that we're dealing with. For instance, those who don't believe yet, you may say, how can I be sure about the word of God? Okay, well, we have, we have answers to that, lots of answers. What about, by the way, let me say, this, this was going to be my second application, but let's throw it in here. You can have absolute confidence in the word of God. Skeptics always like to pretend that the scriptures were written by backward and gullible people who would believe anything and everything, and that's simply not true. You know, when it came to believing the voice of the living God and his spokesman, they should have believed without, without any further ado. But very often that's not the case. Very often they're as every bit as skeptical as the worst skeptic today. Sometimes it seems even worse. Seems like, you know, if Dawkins or somebody actually met the risen Christ and, you know, point, you know pointed out his, his, the holes in it, maybe even he would believe. But Thomas, you know, it takes him a little while, doesn't it? And, uh, and likewise, I think the same thing could be said for a number of instances of God's own people being so slow to believe. Well, all that's part of God's providence in order that his word would be established. 
These people were remarkably skeptical, and God in his condescension ensured that at every point there was ample supernatural demonstration to authenticate his word. He uses the occasion of how skeptical the people were in order to bring more signs, right? If all the people had been as gullible as people think, there never would have been these signs to demonstrate to Moses, first of all, because he's skeptical, then to the people of Israel, because they're skeptical, and then to Pharaoh, right? And to all the people of Egypt, until the point at which no one could possibly deny the reality of the word of God coming through the mouth of Moses. No one could possibly deny it. And we can have perfect, real confidence in the word of God. Those two who end up still refusing to hear it, you're, you're in the same position of Moses at the end of it. You just don't want to believe. You just don't want to hear. You have no legitimate objection. The Word of God is the most well-established book that has ever been by, by a country mile, as we'd say. And if you don't want to hear it, it's not because it's not been supported by evidence. Going back to the first application, though, let's be honest, okay? First of all, you might ask about the word of God. Well, that's covered. And then, well, who knows what else comes up? Satan has this catechism in which he teaches people a long list of objections. Well, if they answer this one, go on to this one. If you go on to that one. What about the people who have never heard in some far-off island? What about them? Well, there you are. What about the problem of evil? Good people who, who suffer in this world. What about evolution? That's definitely disproved God. Well, the question, I think, as God's people, even as we answer these objections, of course, all these are fairly easily answered. Um, A question eventually, as we have patience and dealing with people in that way, eventually is, at what point is that enough? At what point is this no longer a, a valid objection? But really, you just don't want to believe. And that's the limitations for the work of apologetics. But, you know, that's the unbelievers. It's true for God's people as well. You know, it's true for us. There's all sorts of things that God's word calls us to do. Let's, not even, let's, let's save vocation for in a minute. But right now I'm just talking about the law of God. Now I'm just talking about the very clear commandments of God. We, we disobey them. Why? And there are elements of it that we, we intend to continue to disobey. Why? Why? Well, well, I, I know back then this. And I, and I know that maybe theoretically that, but, you know, in my situation at this moment, in this time, I am an exception to God's wisdom. And I don't think that this thing that he's telling me to do in his word, I don't know, take the Sabbath day. Students really find it hard to give, give up a, the Lord's day because I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail. God has called us to obedience And he can answer every objection. And I could sit down and talk and say, let me just tell you my own experience of the goodness of God in observing a whole Sabbath day and the great blessing that has come from it. But when all those objections are answered again, are you willing to hear the voice of God and to obey? That's the only question, really, that's that's worth asking. Let's be honest before God. Now, with vocations... I will say this, particularly in the case of those who are called to church office, particularly in those who are called to the ministry, full of objections. Because Moses was right about one thing. It was going to be hard. And everything about the Christian life is hard. But yes, there is a way, there is a sense in which it is particularly hard for those who have some office, deacons, elders, ministers. 
And we can rightly be, in some sense, be full of objections along those lines. But eventually the question is, are you going to hear the call? Are you going to obey that call? Are you going to do as God has commanded? Well, in all these things, let's at least be honest before God, okay? Don't always play the question game. Eventually say, Lord, you know my heart. I'm, I'm, I'm unwilling. Lord, change my heart so that I am willing. I've said, secondly, to have confidence in the word of God. Thirdly, I want us to be thankful for the, for the, for the provision of God, right? He provides even for our weakness in every sort of way. I mean, this, this God that we serve, he really is amazing. So here he is, Moses, you know, he's looking this way and that, trying to find a way out of this. And there, unfortunately, he's, he's holding a staff. And the Lord says, what's that in your hand? Staff. And turns it into a serpent. Right? And, and he's, he's trying to escape. And, and he keeps uh, making these various objections. What about you've got a hand and I'm going to, you know, put that to use. Everything that's on your, your person, I'm going to, to, show, to put to use, even though you, you doubt my ability to make this work. And he makes his objection, of course, with regard to his, his mouth. And he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to sustain you. In fact, he's going to be made to be a mighty orator. I don't know how many preachers would ever exceed Moses in the history of the world. You read some of these things and some of the most stirring statements that have ever been said. And he says, yes, even I'm making provision for you and your unwillingness to go it alone. Right this moment, Moses, your brother's on his way. Because I've already sent him out into the desert to come meet you. I've already thought of everything, Moses. Even though you and your wickedness and your weakness and your sin, you don't want to do this. And you've made that very clear to me, even when I've answered your reasonable objections. That I, in my wisdom and my providence, I have provided for every last one of these weaknesses. And that God hasn't changed. We haven't gotten any better, maybe. Human beings aren't any better than they've ever been. Maybe we're worse. But God's forbearance and provision in order that the work might carry on never stops. And we should be very thankful for it. When we look into the future, sometimes it looks like a black abyss. But I want you to understand that even now, even now Aaron is on his way. Even now you have something in your hand that God can use in a mighty way. God has already thought of it. Fourthly and finally, I want you to know that God has good purposes even for our impediments. Okay, the previous point had to do with the fact that he has provision to deal with our weaknesses. But I want to say beyond that, he has good purposes even for our impediments. Don't know exactly the nature of whatever was wrong with Moses. Whether it was merely that he was slow of, of speech and thinking on his feet. Or whether he had a, a real speech impediment. It's clear that it was real, but so it was with Paul and the impediment that was mentioned, a thorn in his flesh. Again, we don't know the details. It had something to do with his eyesight, his eyes. He was not able even to write much. He was only able to write a few words towards the end. of. He has to write in really big letters because otherwise he can't see well enough to write. And he has to use someone this great, who wrote this, all these epistles wrote more than, than anyone else of the New Testament and, and he has to use someone else to write it down. Well, God does not share his glory with any 
And the answer that, that God gave to Paul in questioning how God would, why would God send such an impediment his way, he says this, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Well, that's very true. God made sure that we would not look at Paul and say, well, of course, of course. Paul was a great and powerful orator before he ever came to the Lord. And, of course, it's no mistake that, that he was able to convince people. He was, he was very impressive. He was about six foot nine, and he was strikingly handsome, and his oratorial skills were beyond compare. It was exactly opposite. He was contemptible in his appearance, whatever that means exactly. And he was not a very powerful speaker. But God, and to add to it, he was almost blind, it seems. But God was able to use all of these things precisely in that everyone would look at the Lord rather than at this man. And if that's the way it's got to be, brothers and sisters, so let it be. If there is going to be weaknesses and infirmities, may God be glorified. And may we experience the strength and power of God even in our weaknesses. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we are grateful indeed that you are so kind and you are so patient with us, so forbearing. Lord, we do not deserve that you would answer us again, that you would bear with us another moment. Lord, our dessert, what would serve us well really is that we would, in fact, be immediately cut off, that we would immediately be judged. Lord, we have too often taken you for granted. We have too often been slow to obey. We have answered every sort of objection when the reality is we just don't want to do what you've called us to do. But Lord, you are so good that you speak to us again. You recall us. You encourage us even, Lord. Even in the midst of all of our great weakness, Lord, you provide abundantly for it and you encourage us in the reality that it's all going to be fine because you are God and all the universe answers to your beck and call and you have overcome all of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And therefore, Lord, there is no, no eventuality that you have not considered. But rather, Lord, things will come to their determined end and it will be victory. It will be a happy ending. Now we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would go forward and face our weak in the certain knowledge of these things, even if we are to be weak. We know, Lord, we'll be the recipients of your strength. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.